Welcome back to the Changing Construction Podcast, brought to you by Mail Manager, the email management solution developed by Arup to solve your email headache overnight. It's Chris here from Mail Manager, and I just want to start by saying a big thank you to all of our listeners so far. If you like the podcast, please don't forget to like, share, and subscribe, and you can find the podcast on all of the usual podcast channels. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by three legal experts to discuss how AEC firms can be risk-ready and win disputes in the post-pandemic world. Rob Horn from Osborne Clark, James Morris from Mayor Brown and Eleanor Greatholder from Borough Happold are going to be joining us and they're going to share their thoughts on the post-pandemic AEC climate, the importance of preparation in winning disputes and mitigating risk and the three key threads of construction. Welcome to the podcast. I think I'll leave the introductions to you guys. So Ellie, perhaps you go first. Please introduce yourself. Afternoon all, thanks for joining us. Um, yeah, Ellie Greatholder, I've just mentioned to Chris, I'm only Eleanor when I've got something wrong. So uh, yeah, Ellie Greatholder, Head of Commercial and Legal um, for Buildings and Disputes at Bureau Hapold, based in sunny Bath, usually. Uh, it's nice to nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Great stuff. James? Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us. Uh, my name's James Morris. I'm a partner at Mayor Brown in the Construction and International Arbitration and Disputes Practice. Brilliant. And finally, Rob. Thanks, Chris. Um, I'm Rob. I'm a partner, head of construction, engineering, disputes and risk, and head of the infrastructure sector at Osborne Clark. Perfect. So I guess, why are we talking today? So the topic is is risk and disputes, as I said, um, given the, the unknown of the world at the moment and, and you know, the, the situation with the pandemic is a particularly poignant topic. So we're going to be setting the scene a little bit. Um, talking about AEC post-pandemic climate, uh, talking about the three threads of construction, the importance of preparation, and then a Q&A at the end. So in terms of setting the scene, I thought I'd pull out some nice stats to get us started with. So the latest Arcadis 2020 Global Construction Disputes Report suggested that the cost of a dispute, the average cost of a global dispute was $30.7 million, with the average dispute lasting 15 months. And they also found that the dispute volume had actually increased in the last 12 months with poorly drafted or incomplete and substantiated claims becoming the number one cause for construction disputes, which was a change from the year before. And I also dug out two of our own uh, pieces of research, which was um, our 2021 State of AEC Project Management Report, which we released earlier this year. And that found that two thirds of our respondents were having some form of legal dispute since the start of the pandemic. And of those disputes, the most common causes were timeline changes, payment issues and project scope changes. And then we'll cover this um, sort of uh, later throughout the presentations, but the information that most commonly was needed to win cases was evidence of correspondence, contract management, and historic project information. So I won't talk too much more, but I'm delighted to hand over to Ellie, who's going to talk a little bit about what the post-pandemic climate looks like. Thank you, Chris. I think that probably sets a slightly dreary scene, which <laughs> I suspect many of us are unable to kind of move too far away from, sadly. Um, there's three things I want to cover that kind of on the slide there. The, the first is exactly what Chris just said. What does a post-COVID climate possibly look like? And more importantly, maybe what are the positives that we can carry forward from our industry's experience of working through the pandemic um, and a particular focus on collaboration in that respect? Um, I'll then move on to have a, a quick think about the absolute importance of proper contract management as we enter that period of potential volatility and unknowns. 
And then finally, just having a quick think about the potential impact of hybrid working on risk management and things to be alert to. Um, so hopefully some food for thought in here. I doubt very much that I'll be saying anything hugely novel or new to any of you, but I think it's really useful to have um, the time to just re refresh our memories on the things that are important as we enter such a slightly odd period that none of us have ever encountered before. So as Chris has already kind of highlighted through those statistics and supported by the CLC note from January 2021, which talked all about COVID continuing to have a significant impact on firms in construction supply chains, there was a not notable increase in notifications and claims at that stage, partly to chase issues on legacy issues and partly to chase recovery of commercial positions due to the direct impact of the COVID uh, pandemic on current projects. 2021 was seen as bringing the perfect storm of a negative economic environment, Brexit, reduced construction activity, material shortages, the end of government support schemes and the introduction of the reverse charge VAT. All of that carried risk of the industry becoming embroiled in really costly and long running disputes over the effects of COVID if it didn't look to engage in collaborative discussions to try and resolve issues as and when they arrived. And I think that's really key. One of the major positives that we can take from hopefully the last year is that there has been a real positive and increased level of collaboration, particularly potentially in public sector contracts. There's reason to hope that the pandemic really can be a catalyst for transformation and actually probably already has been. I think we've all known as an industry that we need to change, evolve and become more efficient. And I think we've known that for a while. Construction engineering hasn't really evolved an awful lot in the last 20 years, unlike um, others like manufacturing and aerospace. But there is hope that in the next 20 years, we'll see a very different way in which engineering construction projects are carried out. There's a host of technological changes that have the potential to lead that drive for change, such as digital twins, digitization, and a move to assembly rather than a focus purely on construction. In terms of engineering construction disputes, the pandemic has shown that collaboration is a viable alternative to disputes and a change in the adversarial mindset is indeed possible. An example of that briefly, a lot of major industry form contracts weren't really set up to deal with a pandemic and its effects, unsurprisingly. There was often a mismatch between what the contract did allow and what actually felt right at the time. Most standard forms, as you all probably know, allow a contractor's relief in terms of their obligation to complete works by a completion date for events such as force majeure or change in law, but very few allow financial compensation for the delay and disruption caused as a result. As a result of that, I have seen evidence that parties have been looking outside the contract for a solution, discussing alternative proposals on a without prejudice basis to find workarounds. For instance, what would happen in the event of a site shutdown? Some owners agreed to work collaboratively with contractors and agree financial compensation just to ensure that the project was completed. And my personal hope is that that sort of collaboration is not temporary, but can be taken forward. So that brings us perhaps nicely on to the absolute importance of proper contract management. So there seem to be recurring themes at the moment around increased competition for projects in the post-COVID world, and I'd be keen to hear anyone else's experience on that. Largely, there seems to be more pressure on fees as a result. There are less projects around because investors are obviously being more cautious, particularly in certain regions, such as Asia, as we're seeing. And also, obviously, there's less demand for traditional collaboration spaces, offices, conference centres, etc., which, although we hope might change, are not currently in massive demand. 
there's a risk that that in turn might put increased pressure on the project leads to accept onerous or unfavorable terms or an additional increased pressure from clients to come back with acceptance or otherwise in a short timescale or else risk losing the job, which can cause project leaders to circumvent intentionally or otherwise company protocols when it comes to accepting onerous terms. The overall effect of this is the need for those working on projects to have a really good understanding of what they've signed up to, along with a comprehensive risk register so that a contingency is allocated and a plan put in place to deal with issues should they arise. This puts the project team on the front foot, gives them no surprises to distract them from delivery of the project, the ability to flag potential issues early on, and the appropriate people engaged so that the right support can be provided, which is way more competitive in the long run, as we all know. Contract administration is absolutely key. Now is not the time to pop contracts in a drawer to collect dust. Contracts, after all, are an agreed manual of how to manage change and manage risk. They're hugely important in construction contracts. Let's face it, our kind of contracts are those that involve a lot of living, breathing, moving pieces. They're not like a contract to buy goods, not that we should be ignoring those contracts either. But our contracts are very much subject to change and they need really careful contract management as a result. Complying with those contracts shouldn't be viewed as aggressive or hostile. It is what parties have agreed to do after all. And that includes complying with notice requirements, as well as following risk management and early warning notice provisions. Try and make sure that agreements that are made through collaboration, hopefully, around extensions of time and or additional cost are documented properly. Consider wiping the slate clean where, where it's appropriate. It's probably worth noting that almost every dispute that I've ever advised upon has resulted at least in part, if not completely, because of a party's failure to comply with their contract and instead people trying to be clever or helpful or do something that feels right. I've got no intention to want to limit that innovation or that level of discussion, but it's really important to remember to start with the contract, understand what it says to do in any given situation, and if there's a good reason to deviate from that, then get advice and record that change properly. Otherwise, they will, there will always inevitably be a real bun fight at the end, trying to unpick a very messy situation, trying to overlay contractual requirements about what, against what's actually been done, which leaves both parties at risk. I think James will mention this a little bit more later on, but records really are king. Keeping a written record of communications that are made and having clear audit trails is always going to stand you in good stead, whether formal disputes arise later or not. Use without prejudice meetings and communications to have meaningful discussions to try and seek resolution and solutions to issues proactively and concurrently. Probably my best piece of advice is to not let things fester, whether you're under an NEC contract or not. Where things are getting knotty, be familiar with your dispute provisions and think about using senior reps meetings, whether they're a contractual requirement or not. Be prepared for adjudication and open minds to mediation, but go into those prepared. So a full circle back then to collaboration. Set your projects up for success at the start. Make sure contractual discussions are included in kickoff meetings. Understand together as two parties how the contract works and how practically you're going to implement its requirements. Think about holding regular contractual health checks together collaboratively. All of these things will help whether there are formal disputes that occur during the life cycle of the contract or not. And finally, just a few thoughts on the potential impact of hybrid working on risk management and things to be alert to there. I don't have many solutions here, but there are a few thoughts that I've had. So we're already seeing some concern over the risks that hybrid working might bring. There's a real difference between all employees working in an office 
in the main versus all of them being at home, which is arguably much more easy to manage as compared to when people are doing half and half and moving around. There are particular concerns, particularly within our own business, around how to support graduates, where historically a lot of learning comes through osmosis and just being around more experienced professionals, picking up on conversations, and what the knock-on effect of that might be on project quality, as well as balancing the needs of a project against the needs of individuals. There's an increased potential, sadly, for disconnect within teams, and I'm sure we've all felt that over the last year. As a result, there is again an increased potential for quality to suffer. For instance, less experienced professionals not asking for help or raising concerns where they might have done otherwise, where it's easy to just turn around to somebody or raise it over a coffee or lunch. There's also a piece around the fact that homework can provide a bit of a tendency for people to not adhere in the same way to policies and procedures in the same way they would in offices. Standards have the potential to slip. The same level of checking might not happen. But also from a more regulatory perspective, are people being regularly reminded of their responsibilities in relation to anti-bribery and corruption, for instance? Privilege, another issue in this, in this domain. There's an increased tendency with homeworking, I think, and in my recent experience to put things in emails that you would have normally just had a discussion orally with in person with people. That does have potentially dangerous consequences for privilege. And with the risk of increased litigation, we will probably need to have a think about how that's going to be resourced going forward. We all know litigation takes up huge amounts of management and legal time. How do we manage that if it happens? That distraction has the potential to cause a real domino effect, leading to issues on other projects, other things falling under the radar, corners being cut because management aren't around. So having a plan now around how disputes will be dealt with and getting someone from your legal or commercial teams on board as soon as possible can really put us on the front foot and make us more likely to win disputes. Hope that's vaguely helpful. Um, pass back to you, Chris. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. Thanks very much, Elia. I mean, a lot of food for thought there, and particularly around the importance of proper contract management, given the research that I shared at, at the start as well. But um, um, Rob um, and James, any further thoughts from you on, on this on this topic? Can I jump in first, James? So I think the, the one thing that I think is going to be really important this year in particular, um, when you start looking at post-pandemic climate, is the impact of um, insolvency across the sector. Once the restrictions on winding up petitions, et cetera, fall away, how much are we going to see? Where is it going to impact in the supply chain? Where supply and demand is probably already quite heavily weighted towards de demand outstripping supply by a fair margin. If you start seeing a lot of insolvency, that for me could be a, a driver away from that collaborative um, uh, effort that we saw a lot of last year for, for, for me and a, a swing back to that sort of more aggressive, combative stance that has been the mainstay of construction, unfortunately, for a long time. I don't know if that's what you're seeing as well, um, Ellie, or you think that's um, something for everyone to watch out for? I think you're right, Rob. I think that's sadly one of the inevitabilities of the next year, isn't it? I think I, I agree with with all of that. I mean, I was comforted to hear from you, um, Ellie, the same experience that I have had so far, certainly in the beginning in relation, in response to the pandemic in terms of the way the parties were looking to largely work together and find a way through and something that kept um, construction sites going rather than taking a scorched earth approach. But given, as Rob says, what looks 
possible and perhaps likely to happen once those restrictions on winding up petitions are eased. That is something I think the industry needs to keep one eye on. Um, I think the news today about the issues with um, shortage of materials as well is not is not going to help. So it's certainly a, a challenging time ahead um, and something that everybody needs to keep um, front and centre to see if we can build on some of the collaboration and really positive things that have come out of this sort of tricky time for everybody. One other thought, if I if I may, Chris, it was just, um, I think we, J- James, Ellie and I, we, we had the same experience, a lot, lot of collaboration last year, a lot of um, quite innovative thinking around finding solutions to problems where you suddenly hit with lockdown and pandemic that changed everyone's view on what you did on a construction site. Um, my nervousness is that, that there's a lot of discussion and agreement that happened in a good way last year around collaboration that was never properly finalised. So it was never closed out. It was all on an interim basis, get some cash in, resolve a short-term problem. And the question, I guess, facing a lot of people is, have we just stored up a problem for this year by ducking it last year because we never actually solved the problem? We just avoided it and found a way to keep going. I, I don't know if that's the same experience for you and you James Ellie. Yeah I think that's right Rob it kind of feeds into my point about the fact that parties are very good generally at kind of coming up with solutions on the spot when they need to but how that actually relates to the contractual position and how how that pans out going forwards if you do end up in a in a form of dispute whether formal or not later on it can get very knotty if it's not been properly documented so I, I think that was absolutely right. I, I agree. I think I saw a few examples of that where sort of initial discussions were had and then sort of follow up. Has this been recorded? It's fine. We've had a discussion. It's all been resolved. Um, uh, and obviously the, the obvious sort of lawyer's response to that was, you know, let, let's get it in writing while we can. I suppose, like many things, as long as that relationship sort of uh, continues on a good basis all the way through to completion, then perhaps... Um, our worst fears won't be realised, but it's when things start to get more tense um, later on, as we all know, that that, that um, the, the pips start to squeak and, and uh, those sort of issues that everyone thought was resolved before somebody sort of pours over again when the, the file comes across their desk. So I, I completely agree that that is another thing that, that people need to, to look out for and keep front and centre of their minds. And if that hasn't been bottomed out, is it too late to try to, to do that now, wrap that up in some other agreement, dealing with something else perhaps, so that it is formalised before uh, things get sort of trickier later on in the year? Amazing. Some really interesting points there from, from all three. So, Rob, I'm going to go to you next, um, and we're going to look at the three main threads of construction. So how do those three main threads, or how have those three main threads been impacted by the pandemic then, and what are the new dimensions to, to these risks and, and disputes? Thanks, Chris. I'm going to try try and keep this to to not being wholly depressing after um, Ellie's kicked us off with uh, a hopeful, collaborative future. And this is, I suppose, my my, uh, dose of reality um, and things that I hope don't happen or things that I hope we can find solutions to. Um, But we can only find solutions to them by focusing on them, looking at them and dealing with them, not ignoring them. So... um, I wanted to pick up on, on as you've said, Chris, these three three threads, three strands of construction that everyone always focuses on. In order to deliver a good project, what you're looking for is one that finishes on time, to budget, with the right quality. And I think 
from my perspective, all three of those threads have been quite significantly impacted through COVID uh, one way or another, whether it's directly through lockdowns or a difference in, a, in, in approach. So taking them one at a time, I'll try and just highlight some of the issues that there are in there rather than try and find solutions to them all because otherwise we'll be here till midnight. Um, if we look at time first, I think it's very easy to see when we had uh, the, 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 the beginnings of COVID, March, April last year, lockdown came into effect. But, but how did it come into effect? Some building sites closed completely. Others I know carried on at full capacity, depending on which particular sector you were in. So, for example, the, the energy sector and construction in energy was very had very limited impact from the lockdowns because it was um, a, a, a national nationally significant construction projects. So more or less carried on as if nothing was happening in terms of lockdown. But sitting behind that, you have all of the other issues around changing in working practices. How did you do that? And what did you actually do to achieve your keeping your site open and, and functioning? How did you get people there? What, what was the disrupt level of disruption that you were feeling on that site because you had to maintain social distancing, you had to have staggered work start and finish times, you had to have staggered break times. How was all of that managed and how has that impacted on the outturn cost? First of all, for the contracting entity bearing the, the first bash of that cost, so the person actually paying someone's wages, what's he done with that money or that company done with that money? Then looking at how has that contracting entity passed that cost back up the supply chain? Because as Ellie's already highlighted, the contracts don't necessarily get you all the way there in terms of looking at the impact of that disruptive element. Importantly, I'll, I'll come on and talk about cost in a moment, but importantly, that disruptive element has a big impact on time and can significantly change the way your <coughs> intended program is going to work. So actually looking back and adjusting that program to the realistic productivity rates can fundamentally change the critical path through the works. And probably the easiest example to give is whilst um, in a lot of on a lot of sites, on-site operations slowed down or stopped, a lot of off-site operations, particularly design operations, didn't necessarily slow down or stop to the same degree because they could be taken um, and, and worked from a remote location that much more easily. Obviously, you can't put bricks down on a site if you can't access the site but you can still do the design drawings without access to the site as long as you've got access to the appropriate software and you can connect with it, everyone else so again just an example of how you're going to have to think differently about how delay and disruption impacted your project during during the course of lockdown and i think we're still not out the other side of that we're still seeing lots of issues around the disruptive influence of lockdown, less so with sites being opened, still got um, restrictions around how you operate a site, but we're seeing lots of issues in the supply chain at the moment. From my perspective, materials are hard to come by. That, that's already been picked up. It's very unusual to see problems in uh, delivery of construction materials hitting the mainstream media, that we've seen that reported in mainstream media this, this week. 
um, shortage of construction materials. There's, a, there's dozens of issues that sit behind that. If you can't get materials, what do you do? The fact that we had Brexit happen in the middle of all of this, creating more barriers to getting goods into the country quickly, effectively, efficiently, has just made things that much more difficult. A big crossover, I think, with the, with the next topic. I'm going to take slightly out of order and talk about cost next because it flows most neatly from, from time. But how you... Once you've identified what that time impact was, how do you then start pricing it? That's that's a really big problem. The lower down the supply chain you go in a construction project, the more likely it is you're going to find unresolved cost hiding somewhere where someone has taken a what they will probably perceive as a short-term hit on their balance sheet to retain their position on a project possibly borrowed heavily, waiting for the project to restart, and is now going to start looking at, well, how do I get that cost back? So rather than that um, short-term profit and loss being the driver, the long-term balance sheet is going to become really important to businesses going forwards to demonstrate to banks and other lending entities that they have um, sufficient money coming in, not only to pay for current services, but to start repaying any losses that they've uh, incurred over the last year. We all know construction works on a 1% to 3% margin-ish. Um, so the ability to recover losses is, ex is extremely limited and can play out over quite a long time. My question for, for the, the audience and for everyone to really challenge themselves and all the projects they're involved in is how much time have you really got? How much time before insolvency becomes a real threat, either to your entity or to an entity below or above you in that supply chain? And that, that I think, is going to be a real key driver. And that's where my, my concern come, comes in the move away from collaboration again. I, I would love collaboration in the same way that we've seen it, finding solutions to the problems that we had last year. I would love that to stay in the industry. I think cash is going to become king again, however, my personal view. Um, and we will see that need for cash flow into the industry really driving behaviours this year. Um, again, another aspect of cost that's really important. I mentioned this is this is a buyer's market now, or seller's market rather. Um, there is very limited supply and an awful lot of demand. You start looking at infrastructure sector within within construction, so infrastructure construction. The anticipation is that there's going to be a huge amount of investment over the next two, three, five years into infrastructure. But the building blocks, literal building blocks of infrastructure are unavailable. You can't get hold of steel. You can't import enough concrete. You can't get um, outside of materials. You can't get people to manufacture or install and construct anything that you've got at the moment. So lots of issues around cost. Because it's a seller's market, you're seeing cost escalation quite quickly. So even in short-term projects, actually, there's quite a lot of cost escalation, which usually no one would have worried too much about because of Brexit, because of the pandemic, because of pressure on supply chains. Someone's going to have to bear the risk and the, the cost of that escalation. Um, and the question is, what are you going to do with it? How can you deal with it? Um, for a lot of contracts, there won't be a cost escalation provision 
But if there's any change in the contract, whether a, a compensation event under NEC or, or under the equivalents under J, JCT or, or the others, once you start getting those changes, you'll find the, the new items of work will be disproportionately expensive compared to the original contract price just because of movement in the market. So an, another one to re really look at, and I can see finance charges being applied and recovered much more vigorously than perhaps they have in the past. Finally, just probably the most, most challenging one of the three is quality, but equally probably the one that people uh, overlook most easily when looking at the pandemic because the time and cost really has got, got into everyone's mind. But the quality aspect, I think, is really important. When you've had a period of not just lockdown, but limited access or changed access to a project, the ability to carry out those quality assurance checks, on-site testing, visual inspections as a project's being built has been limited, hampered, disrupted, altered. In the normal run of events, where you see that level of disruption to the quality assurance procedures, you tend to get projects that have higher than average defects, higher than average failure rates on all sorts of components and building structures. But now we've got that as an industry, not just one project, we've got it across the entire industry. How are we going to deal with that at an industry level? How are we going to unpick and, and assure ourselves that construction that took place, took place properly, particularly where it's been covered up, whether that's concrete pours over foundations or M&E first fix being covered up by plasterboard, whatever sort of construction you're into, there's an awful lot of quality assurance that will have now been missed, not, not through anyone's failure, but because that opportunity hasn't been, been there. I'm expecting, and I know James is going to pick this up, um, and Ellie's already touched on it, I'm expecting to see significantly less quality assurance records, um, and that's going to drive an awful lot of problems going forwards where um, you used to see you know, there, there will be some issues around defects, but they tended to be the easier ones to deal with because you, you had lots of facts and you could go and actually test things and find out the, the truth. I think in this post-pandemic period, we're going to struggle even in that arena to find out what's happened with building quality and redefining what's a defect and what action you take as a consequence of a defect is going to be really challenging for everyone. An awful lot there to, to think about, Chris, um, and a lot of it isn't good news and isn't the sort of happy picture I'd love to paint of um, post-pandemic post collaboration and working together to find solutions, um, but a lot of stuff to really think about and focus on. Thank you very much for that, Rob. And uh, you, you're totally right. The the addition of Brexit is a, is another added complexity. But anything else to to add there from James or Ellie? I only really to um, echo some of the points I think that that Rob's made there. Um, particularly the quality issue. I can see that being something which um, may may take um, many years to for, for some of the issues that arise out of that period to, to become known uh, that tends to be the way these uh, things work certainly with 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 latent defects um, and you know that is something that the industry is already struggling with as we all know with all the, the thing that's come out of the defects that have come out as a consequence via safety Grenfell and the like um, you know the last thing the industry needs is 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 more of that but
as as Rob said, it, it, it wouldn't be at all surprising, I think, if if some of the impact of, of the pandemic and um, the restrictions on carrying out works and, and particularly in the supervision of works, I think, because lots of the construction sites that continued from from what I saw um, were, you know, subcontractors and, and, and labourers and people going on carrying on with things. Um, there was certainly a period when when lots of professionals weren't necessarily on site as frequently as they might have been. I think that changed relatively quickly, but still there's a, a lag there. And if that was going through a period of, of real importance to the project when significant pieces of work were being done and, uh, and not uh, with, with no proper oversight, then that is surely something that, that is going to be storing up trouble for later. Um, I think one of the interesting things is how the industry might try to um, tackle that going forward in future with the available technology that there is, you know, should heaven forbid we ever end up in a similar situation or there's similar restrictions um, that we think in advance about how we might be able to redress the balance on some of those points. I'm thinking, you know, cameras, um, drones, that sort of thing, which the industry already uses, of course, but um, can they be used in other ways? I don't know. Um, something to think about, I think. Absolutely. Yeah. Ellie, anything to add? Yeah, I was just going to pick up, James has made some good points there on the quality point. On time and cost, interested in your views, Rob and James, there seems to be an interesting question around when COVID and its impacts should have become or should become, if it's a future thing, something that the industry is expecting and is therefore kind of mitigating the impact of. You know, there's arguments to say force majeure, for instance, is not a force majeure event anymore. But when did it stop being or has it? I, d I don't know. There's an interesting piece that seems a quite a grey area that's potentially going to have quite a big impact on those sorts of claims going forward. Yeah, I think that's right, Ellie. I think, as you've said, March last year is relatively easy to demonstrate um, for force majeure for a, a pandemic at that stage through to the, the spin forwards to the summer where we've just come out of lockdown and, and we're working again but socially distanced but everyone's reporting there's going to be a second wave much more difficult at that stage to say as a force majeure because there there clearly is an understanding of what's happening whether you can do anything about it is a slightly different matter um, and whether it's two different events or a continuation of one event makes it even more complicated but I, I think you're, you're right and it's something that's going to challenge us for quite, quite a few years to, to come. I agree with that I can see um, lots of arguments coming and I've seen some already on, on a similar theme on that and I think it's a, a difficult area and it's one that I think I'm right in saying that we've, we've probably never grappled with before so it is one of the big unknowns in many ways so i mean i'm conscious as, as rob said when he introduced us we're we're talking now of um sort of doomsday scenario after doomsday scenario and all terrible news so uh, ho hopefully the industry will be able to find a way through that sort of shared problem because one of the things that was clear as we talked about in march april was that it you know affected everybody and you know it's not good enough really just to sort of land that uh, loss or whatever it might be on on the lap of the person who's at the bottom of the food chain that's at least not if you want to get to the stage of your perhaps long project through to completion there's got to be an element of support there and common sense and collaborative thinking so I completely agree with with Rob and and the 
um, issues that he's raised in terms of let's be realistic what's going to be happening next but I, i'm hopeful that there is something of a silver lining somewhere in a number of respects actually in terms of lessons learned about the different ways of working um, that the industry has, has had to adapt to but also that some of the things that we i think rightly are thinking about now in terms of risks of what might happen don't actually come to fruition now that may be uh, wishful thinking on my part but um i think the industry needs some of that sometimes so fingers crossed <laughs> i think i think it's going to be really interesting to see how the different forms of contract look in another three three years time and whether you see you know the the nec collaborative type models um doing significantly better in terms of project outturn than mm. the slightly more traditional combative approach of a traditional FIDIC or JCT, whether you can have a clear line between them. Maybe the conditions are there to, to start showing some separation, I think. That's a good point, Robin. And maybe that will be the ultimate test, won't it, to see whether this has really changed anything and if that is something that people can agree upon and that starts to make its way into more contracts. But I guess time will tell. I guess the issue there as well, as we all know, is that actually the spirit of mutual trust and collaboration is more than the words on the page. It's a culture, it's a mindset change, and that isn't something that can happen overnight. And it does depend on the personalities and characters and relationships involved. It's the human element of the industry we work in, which is um, sadly, as lawyers, much harder for us to fix, I think. I agree with that. Great stuff. So, I mean, we're on to the final section now of our, of our key themes around why preparation is key. So, James, over to you. Sure. Thank you, Chris. So, I think we've, we've heard there about all the uncertainties that there are, and I'm sure um, much of that is common thinking um, to all of, all of the people in the audience who've seen all of this much closer than we have day to day. The, the things that I just wanted to talk briefly about really were, were some of the tools as I see them um, that you can use to help you uh, manage disputes and, and manage risk and, and hopefully eventually win uh, disputes. None of them are particularly uh, novel, I don't think. I'm sure you'd have heard many of them before, um, but they do, as Ellie said at the top, I think bear repeating and sort of with a particular focus obviously on on where we are now. So. First one about preparation, more important than ever, I think. Um, one of the best ways of preparing for disputes, I think, is to have the right team in place, instructed at the right time, and to have made sure that your records, correspondence files are as complete as they possibly can be. Um, assembling the right team, doing that you know, in the midst of a big dispute that has just landed on your desk is not the best time to be doing that. Um, I think everybody, the industry is generally very busy at the moment, and that sort of goes to all sections of the industry, I think, um, including experts, lawyers and, and the like. And I think um, having good, strong relationships with those who you regularly go to for advice is actually really, really critical. Um, you don't want to be ringing round uh, as soon as you've got a, um, a big dispute that you've sort of known bubbling along in the background and has been for some time. And then, you know, perhaps in, on receipt of an adjudication notice, having to um, do your best in the short time available um, is much better to have given that adequate thought in advance and, and really got all of your uh, records organised and know who is doing what 
um, and ideally have them getting on with the work that you anticipate is going to be needed to be done. Um, there's obviously a balance there because nobody wants to front load all of the costs in the beginning, um, but it, it's sort of working out really what period of time you think it's going to take for the dispute to crystallize and you know the amount of time that you think it's going to be necessary to spend looking at all of this balancing that against the risk of uh, I don't know the sum in dispute and the gravity of the problem perhaps for the business so I think those are important things to keep in mind um, in terms of records and we've touched on it briefly already in both um, Ellie and Rob's comments but I think one thing that I have noticed, certainly in my own practice, and I'm sure this is true of, of everybody, is a huge increase in the amount of email traffic that there is. Obviously, a move away from face-to-face -face meetings um, has meant more emails. I think being isolated for such a long period of time, people have become tired of Zooms, uh, WebExes, the like, and phone calls, frankly. And I completely identify with um, Ellie's comments earlier about more being put on email, sometimes things that, you know, really it would be better not to be on email um, and in letters. And I think that is, there's probably something in Ellie's point as well about not having that formality, not complying with policies that otherwise people would be reminded of if they were in the office. And the consequence of that, I think, is that it's made, well, there's many consequences of it, but, but for present purposes, I think it's that it's led to this, you know, even greater proliferation of data, which gives rise to challenges about how one manages all of that. And that is very tricky, particularly at a time when perhaps the people who are responsible for that side of things sometimes uh, may have been some of the people who were furloughed. Um, and what does one do now when people are back uh, about recovering that situation when we've been in this period for, for quite a number of months now? So that's something I think that businesses are going to be reluctant to spend lots of time and money on, understandably, when, um, uh, when things are difficult. But it is an investment, I think, that pays dividends, certainly if there are lots of disputes bubbling. And I guess that's a, uh, an assessment that each business needs to be able to take um, based on what they know about their sort of disputes portfolio. I mean, I think the other thing to think about as well is the, 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 the different places in which you've got data that you might not necessarily have had prior to the pandemic. So I'm aware that lots of other people have started using and, and many have already done this for quite some time but uh, other chat functions other apps uh, and, and the like and one thing is clear is that there is now more business data in different sources than there probably ever has been um, which just makes finding all that is necessary to properly prepare for disputes really really tricky and expensive frankly because as I say, the volume of it has just gone up. So the more staff can be encouraged, I think, to have particular procedures, um, folders, filing, all that sort of good um, administrative management um, will just make uh, dealing and preparing for disputes so much more straightforward um, than if there's lots of hours and time being spent um, looking for those documents after the event or once the adjudication notice, a claim form, whatever it might be, has been served. Um, 
the other thing to, to talk about is the um, document retention policies um, and, and as I mentioned the, the rise in at home tech does it take account of that do they need to be tweaked um, to factor in what's happened during the pandemic and the ways that people are now working again Ellie was talking earlier about the the move to the hybrid model that raises a lot more challenges um, as far as I can see it's, it's, it's easier once um, everybody is working in you know, either in person or at home the difficulty comes when there's this hybrid situation i think where um, there's the potential at least for things to fall between the stools that needs to be managed and thought about both in terms of just general management of staff i think but also um, more importantly here for how data is is tracked collected and filed uh, again, this is, is not particularly pandemic related, but I think it has taken a bit of a hit as a consequence of it is sort of staff training um, on sort of dispute management and what one does when when one looks like it is about to kick off or uh, an issue's you know, raised its head and it, it looks like it may turn into something in the future. Does the fact that people are working from home mean that's less likely that they'll bump into their in-house team in the corridor? Uh, just mention it in passing, in-house team follow up. I think that's a possibility. And I'm sure many firms and, uh, and um, contracting companies have also um, put in place sort of contingency plans for that, webinars and the like. But again, engagement on those things, I think, particularly over the last 18 months is, is difficult. We've certainly noticed that, I think, in the beginning, really high levels of engagement over the last few months, less so as people have grown tired of, you know, constant uh, Zooms, uh, WebExes, phone calls and the like, it's, it's more difficult to get engagement. So I think that is something that um, shouldn't be overlooked because it's one of those things that it is easy to overlook when people are really busy doing um, other things. The, the other thing that's um, uh, come up recently on a case that I've been working on, it's just really hit home is that that's quite surprising from my perspective anyway, but it seems that there has been quite a lot of staff movement generally in the industry over the last um, six months, I'd say. And that leads to real evidential issues with disputes. So if the person who was the key project manager on a site, for example, a project that's run on for many years, has left just left to go to a competitor and you're in the middle of a dispute and that sort of departure hasn't been managed as sensitively as may have been that can lead to real issues later on in terms of collecting the evidence that you need and getting the witness statements etc that you might need from that individual and that's something i think it's really important that that isn't overlooked because that person the particular case i've got in mind it, it, it is just absolutely invaluable in terms of pointing um, the legal team in the right direction of, of documents that are absolutely essential to you know, defending positions and winning disputes. And it's quite easy to overlook that, I think, and, and people to think that, you know, oh, it's fine, we've got the documents, it, it, it's not an issue. But as we all know, the documents don't always tell the full story and there are almost always gaps there that will need to be filled by evidence and trying to have some integration i think between the hr policies and, and how this is going to be managed and what agreements it might be necessary to put in place as people sort of transition away from the business is a really smart thing to do and on the particular case that i'm mentioning here 
fortunately that was managed really really well and it has just paid absolutely absolutely uh, large dividends in terms of what we've been able to achieve as a consequence of that input which without it would have taken possibly six months for somebody to be pouring over the documents and really get a handle on them in the way that the particular person who's the key witness has done already so that would be a, a top tip i think from me the last thing really again is just with a view to all of the risk and uncertainty that is out there is checking your insurance policy position now not not everyone in an organization is going to be an insurance expert and, and nor should they they want to be um, but they should at least know i think who is in the organization and who they need to speak with and, and notify problems about as soon as they arise I think the one key takeaway for anybody sort of who's not familiar with this, but the point resonates with is, is just that time is usually of the essence here. So if you think that there is a grumble or a gripe that might turn into something more, notify it internally to the person who's in charge of, of managing the insurance position and have a discussion with them about it. They'll have a view, be able to speak to brokers, et cetera, and work out whether it is something that needs to be notified or whether it's something that you know you can monitor and see how it goes but that is i think a real support network for the business to be able to know that they've got that person uh, who they can have that discussion with in the first instance and hopefully helps manage some of these risks um, and hopefully gives the business a, an increased chance of having some actual sort of insurance backing in the event that it is something that turns into a dispute and one where there is some liability so Chris, that was that was all I was going to say on on this section. So back to you. Perfect. Thanks very much, James. And yeah, some some really interesting points there around records and document management. I'll be intrigued to get Ellie and Rob's views on the state of document management in the disputes that they come across. Is it do they typically see good document management and record management, or um, you know, what, what's your thoughts? I don't mind chipping in first, uh, if that's all right, Rob. And um, I've seen a real mixture, to be honest. I think it varies very much on the on the individuals and the teams that you're dealing with and across different businesses and organisations I've worked with. The experiences are very different, as you'd expect, I guess. I think, and you'll be pleased to hear this, Chris, the most successful projects I've seen in this regard are ones that have got good email management systems or systems such as CMAR in place where parties are prompted and it's very difficult for them to not do the right thing. <laughs> But I completely take all of James's points um, equally comforting and slightly scary, I think. Comforting in the respect that it's a, a shared experience, but scary in that, particularly from an in-house legal role, I live in fear of the next disclosure exercise that we ever end up having to <laughs> take part in, particularly after the last year. I think there's all sorts of risks, most of which I think we've covered this afternoon. But you know, there's all sorts of things that happen at home that don't happen in the workplace. Simple examples, like I've heard colleagues saying that their OneDrive systems don't work properly, so they just save everything on their own PC, on you know, on their on their own desktop. Absolute nightmare <laughs> coming forward. Um, if if that's the case, and that's you know, that's just one example. I'm sure there are many others that I don't want to know about at the moment too. And James makes an equally good point about, particularly again from an in-house perspective, around I guess. My limited availability working from home to be able to pervade and infiltrate the business and hear what's going on and have those conversations and carry on the same relationships that you tend to have as an in-house lawyer with your teams where you just hear informally, if not formally, what's coming, which, as James has already highlighted again, is important from an insurance perspective in terms of timely notifications, but also clearly in our industry where 
adjudication is always looming and comes very quickly and happens very hard and fast when it does is something we ought to ideally be lined up and prepared for at least a little bit in advance. So yeah, I I guess there's lots of problems there, maybe not so many solutions, but I think email management and uh, document management systems are fairly key to a lot of this, as is training. Again, as James has mentioned, I think it is easy for people in businesses not to really know how to respond to a dispute until it happens. Thankfully, I think largely, you know, whole heaps of many businesses, those individuals won't have come across a dispute before, or if they have, they won't have been central to it. And it's only when they go through it that they kind of really realise how much how much documentation is needed, how much time is taken up, how much of a focus it becomes. So the more training you can do to kind of instill those messages as best you can without the real life experience, which we all hope to avoid, the better. And part of that training, I think, needs to be around what people on the ground can do if they see a dispute coming, practical steps, you know, who to speak to, as James says, who's who's in charge of the insurance notifications, what information do they need? What else does your in-house team need? I always ask for kind of chronologies as, as simple or as complex as they can manage, preferably with hyperlinked, you know, links to documents that they're referring to. Obviously, as, I, as I've mentioned, if adjudication hits, you need to be prepared very, very quickly. And having the key documents at the very least kind of to hand in, a, in an accessible format that you can also share with experts and external counsel if required is, is one of the best um, bits of advice I try and spread around our own business in terms of kind of preparation for disputes. So yeah, I, I couldn't agree more with with all of James has said. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point there around sort of like everyone needing to be a document manager in a business these days in the digital age and um, uh, digital fluency is a topic for maybe another time, but just generally across the industry, I think dig- digital fluency skills are fairly low compared to other industries. But Rob, what what's your thoughts on on documents and, and record management? Yeah, no, not not an awful lot to, to add to what um, James and Ellie have said. Really, you, you see the good, the bad, and the ugly across everything that comes out. It's sometimes it's absolutely horrific, and you 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 wish you hadn't seen a load of stuff, but it happens. I think the only point that I would add to to that that, that discussion is you, you can't distinguish at a corporate level who's going to be the offender. You can't say you know this company's good and this company's bad. You can get a little way there on a project by project basis and say, well, this project is being managed quite well. So I expect the document retention and file structure to be reasonably good. Even when you get to the individual level, you still can't distinguish because I've seen individuals on one project be absolutely brilliant and spot on with filing their emails. Then they're on another project and it all goes haywire and they're filing them all over the place. It would be nice to have some sort of predictability to it all. Um, it would certainly make my job much easier. It would reduce the cost dramatically of you know what what we all have to do. And I'm sure James and Ellie are the same as me. The first thing we do is sit there and say, "Well, can you just send me a load of documents, please? Can you tell me what's what's happened? What's going on? How did you get there?" The the the, the dream, as Ellie's explained it, of having a hyperlinked hyperlinked chronology. I mean, that's that's gold dust. I've, I think I've ever seen one of those, not in a long time. Um, not not one that actually works anyway. You get something with hyperlinks in, the, the hyperlinks will fail and um, it's someone's made it up, basically. Um, I think the, one other issue which I think is really interesting is what, what the impact of this uh, hybrid working, working from home is going to have on the role of in-house counsel, whether it solidifies the position of in-house counsel or move some people away from it because if an in-house counsel isn't in the office next door in the room next door 
have you lost some of the benefit of them being there as compared as compared to going to your law firm of choice or is the uh, understanding of the business that you get from being in-house counsel even more important now than it ever has been and therefore there's a pull towards in-house counsel even more even though you're not physically co-located with the rest of the business i think that's that's a really interesting dynamic um, from, from a legal perspective that we're going to see play out over the next few years as well if okay, i could per- just i'm conscious yeah, sorry, of time, Chris, if i <laughs> yeah. could really quickly chip in and defend my job here um <laughs> And my future, hopefully. Um, I, I think I think we're absolutely right. I, I guess the counter to that and the counter to some of the stuff that James and I have talked around, kind of the, the inability to infiltrate the business quite so easily, the counter is that actually in some respects it's easier because there are so many calls that you can chip in on and have access to that you probably wouldn't. Otherwise, people wouldn't bother you or invite you to come all the way up to wherever it is in the country or the world to come and join a conversation, which actually now we're more able to do. So you you know, they're a definite, I want to leave on a high. <laughs> Ellie, Ellie, do you see that coming from others in terms of inviting you on to calls? Or is that something in terms of just having discussions that you might be having informally with other people, you know, suggesting that you have a chat with somebody or catch up and then seeing how it, you know. Yeah, over- a bit of both, to be honest. Yeah, I, th- I think we are certainly invited to more and more calls. I'm sure we're all in the same boat at the moment, kind of Zoom fatigue, night to well, I say nine to five, but it's obviously far more than that, actually. But um, but also, I think it's easier to push your way in a little bit if you're not, if you can just chip in for 10 minutes and listen to a part of a conversation or, you know, ask a few sensible questions and then disappear again. That element is much easier. And don't, and let's not forget as well, you know, Bureau Hapod Global Consultancy, we're used to working across across a large organization, you know, across the world, a large organization. I think we're obviously not alone in that. So I, I think some credit that actually there are some positives to take and actually perhaps going full piece for the whole thing there are some silver linings to take from all of this um just to finish i'd like to sort of ask you all what your number one piece of actionable advice is so ellie i'll, I'll start with you something that the, the listeners can take away i think the training piece is vital actually and training can obviously cover a, a wide range of things but if, if there's anything you do make sure your business understand the importance of everything we've talked about today why you need a contract why you need to know what's in your contract how to manage your contract and how to record the things in your contract which is probably more than one but you get the gist perfect rob uh, so i think mine is that there's no absolute particularly in this post-pandemic world so take care be proactive and be realistic in what you are trying to achieve and mine, I would say, is uh, good records and good leavers. It's a nice way to end. Thanks very much. Thanks all. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks.